everybody. Welcome to Dazzle Doctor. I'm Misty Coper, and I'm here with my colleague, uh, Dr. Elena. And we are here to talk to you today about Dr. Elena's approach to handling physical therapy that she does so well. But first, we wanted to just uh, chat with you guys a little bit. This is our second full podcast, and we're super, super excited to be back. We just got through with some holidays and had a really good time. Uh, even though we are under the pandemic rules here in Maryland, um, so I'm going to say hi to you guys and kick it over to Elena. Hi, how are you doing today, Dr. Elena? Hello, doing well. Yeah, the holidays were a little bit different this year and very, very quiet on my end. So nothing too crazy. Luckily, you know, we were able to at least do a small dinner with our family, just me and my kids and my mom. And my husband was at work that day since he is a firefighter. So, so yeah, that's pretty much it. We had some good leftovers. So <laughs> how about you? It was definitely a year of leftovers, not as many people around the table, but we had a nice dinner with me and my husband and his parents and his brother. And we were socially distant and we all wore masks and had a really nice dinner. And then out on the lawn, we got to say hello to my husband's cousin and his wife. She's due in May. So she we, we wanted to see her baby bump. So she stood out on the lawn and um, we waved to them and they were super cute. So that was really good to at least be able to lay eyes on them because they've been wanting that baby for so long. So wow. I was just so excited. Yeah, it was really, really cute. That's they awesome. had cute little maternity shirts. They were matchy-matchy. It was <laughs> So I think it's, you know, going to be, again, for Christmas, it's going to be strange again. Um, we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're going to go to my husband's parents' house for Christmas Eve and have a quiet dinner. When normally that's kind of a, we, we usually all go to church and we're all together on that night. And it's, there's a, usually a big group of us. And then we usually go to his parents' house to eat. There's usually just so many of us and there are cousins and little ones and all of that. And there's, you know, we sit around the tree and we have Christmas day and that's going to be different this year. And I think you usually have quite a lot of people with you on Christmas. Too. Yeah, we usually, ours is usually on Christmas Eve. We usually do the big family dinner on Christmas Eve. And then that way, Christmas Day, everybody can kind of just hunker down and just do things on their own timeline without having to rush around or do anything crazy. But I don't know, it's kind of up in the air right now because usually that Christmas Eve dinner is multiple family members and everybody has kids and, you know, it's usually a, a pretty big thing. So I don't know, it's kind of up in the air right now. We haven't finalized any plans or anything. Well, I can tell you, so one thing that we are going to do this year, and I thought, you know, it, there are some good things about what's going on now. It forces you to think differently about how you've always done things. I just can't believe some of the ideas that I'm having this year, that we're all having this year, haven't occurred to me sooner, I guess, I would say. My gap family is very large, and now we're scattered literally all over the world. Some of us are in Australia, Hawaii, all over the place. And I know I'm missing people who are in other places, and then, of course, there are a lot of us all over the place in the United States. So having all of us get together is just kind of, 
out of the question. But having video chat, virtual chat has always, or not maybe not always, but you know, for at least for the last number of years has always been an option and we've never taken advantage of it. I think just because it's never really occurred to us to do that. And probably also as uh, Dr. Elena will attest, I may be at a bit of a technological disadvantage. I'm not really, I know how to use, I know how to use chats, but I, I did struggle today. So we'll see. Um, my dad's family is probably also not the most technologically advanced. So we'll see how it works. But we are going to try to have a Zoom call, which will be new to us this year. And if it works out, we're hoping to keep this first one to 30 minutes. But if it works out, we thought maybe we might even have one. Once a month might be a little ambitious for us at first, but uh, at least once a quarter, you know, maybe right around a, a holiday time when people normally would gather anyway. So even when we get back to being able to gather, you can have the people who are gathered can kind of host the call and then they can be in front of the camera and everybody else can dial in. Uh, it's just the idea that that's never occurred to us before is kind of silly now. Yeah, and I think that with everything that's happened this past year, like holidays are always surrounded by such traditions. You know, everybody has their own traditions and the things that they want to make sure that they do. And this year's kind of thrown a wrench in that system. So people are having to rethink and reevaluate traditions and, and figuring out, okay, how can we do this in a way that we can still carry on the tradition, but modifying it because of the circumstances. And it's interesting what people have been coming up with. So. In some ways, for us, this is even more inclusive because some of these family members who have been so far away for us and as a result maybe have been, you know, just unable to gather with us, it's just shocking that we haven't thought about this manner of including everybody in the past. It's interesting how even though the pandemic is kind of keeping us apart, it has also had the effect of bringing at least me together with a lot of other people. And, you know, on the topic of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and I am on disability, I don't have a lot of opportunity to gather with the people that I love in my family. Anyway, travel is very difficult for me. And I don't live near any of my family. So I frequently am feeling disconnected from my family. And it's interesting to me that a lot of people are now kind of going through what I tend to go through on a daily basis. And for me, people's uh, desire now to be on more virtual meetings and more virtual calls has brought me more in touch with a lot of people than I was, um, say, a year ago. Right. And because it's becoming more of a commonality, you know, with being able to connect on that virtual level and not necessarily having the physical option be an issue or be an option. Now this, this virtual option is allowing people that have disabilities and limited endurance or, or limited tolerance to travel. Now they can reconnect and because everybody else is pulling back and kind of reaching out in this way. And through the virtual thing, now the people that couldn't be there physically can now join in. So can be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's made a lot of new work options for people with disabilities. I think it has um, changed how a lot of people are doing business now. It's you know there are a lot of despite all of the bad things, I and mean, we can certainly go on and on about all of the inconveniences that we're going through. The and obviously the economic impact has been tremendous for um, a lot of people out there and loneliness has, has surely been a thing. There are a few nuggets that we can pick out of this and and this has been one for me. Silver lining. I, yeah, silver lining. There you go. Thank you. Silver lining. Perfect. 
And I also wanted to ask you, you were talking about traditions. Do you have any like one kind of thing that your family does that's a little different from anybody else or maybe a dish that you guys always have that's different? Like for example, for Thanksgiving, my husband's family always has sauerkraut and I've never encountered that before. I love it actually. I thought it would be weird, but I really like it. And I look, I've come to look forward to it now. It's something that I guess I think my mother's mother always did it because her husband liked it. I think he's Irish, um, but I've always kind of thought of sauerkraut as a more German thing. And my family has uh, both Irish and German in it. So uh, we've always eaten a lot of sauerkraut, but I've never really thought of it as like a Thanksgiving thing. So I thought that was interesting. And one of the things that we do, just my husband and I, is we celebrate what we call Christmas Adam. So the day before Christmas is Christmas Eve and uh, Adam came before Eve. Mm-hmm. So Christmas Adam comes the day before Christmas Eve. And on Christmas Adam, we each open one gift from each other. Aww. So like a little private holiday and it's disgrace and it's always kind of warm and cozy and we just celebrate it privately and quietly and we each get a little gift. Nice. Yeah, no, I would say that my husband's family, they have a tradition for Christmas Eve to eat stuffed ham. And I don't know if many people actually know what stuffed ham is. I almost hesitate to ask what the ham is stuffed with, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. It's and I think it's mostly cabbage and spinach and some other things. It's a very big Southern Maryland thing that has been a tradition for forever, apparently. I'm personally not a fan, but they love it and they always make a ton of it. And so it's always interesting to to smell that when we go over for, for the dinner. Oh, that sounds interesting. Okay. Stuff ham. Nope, that's a new one on me. Yeah. Well, I gotta keep everybody socially distant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I thought maybe we would kind of go back and recap how kind of how we met, but also the evolution of how we came to where we are now. And kind of from I'll tell you about it from my perspective and then maybe we'll talk to you, we'll speak to your perspective of it and and I think that'll that'll kind of help everybody understand how we're going to approach our discussions and also if people give us their input as well on what they might like to hear, you know, maybe something that you and I are don't have as much experience with or we're just need some prompting to talk about. So I'm going to start off by saying if you have anything that you want to talk to us about, please remember to reach out to us, but also ask us any questions, reach out to us through our social media, and I'll be putting those links into our text at the bottom of the podcast. And also when we when we sign out, I'll be giving those as well. So when Elena and I met, I went, I was uh, in a lot of pain, which is kind of the norm for me, but I was in some super pain. So I guess the way that I, I, and I know we all who are in this chronic pain category, hate the pain scale. I certainly hate the pain scale. Dr. Elena, you probably also hate the pain scale. I do. Yeah. It's, in my opinion, at least, it's an outdated and stale and static way of measuring something that is not static. It's it's just irrelevant. When you're talking to people, so speaking for myself, when you're talking to me about pain, you're speaking to someone who has had near-death experiences that have been so painful that people shouldn't ever really go through them unless they are on their way out, you know, unless they're unless they're dying. 
So when you're saying 10 is the most pain you can imagine, I can imagine pain that other people maybe have not experienced, which by the way, good for them, because I don't ever want anyone to go through some of that. But when you're speaking to somebody who's ruined your bell curve, I guess, having their 10 just isn't the same. You know, we hear this all the time. Everybody's 10 is different. Okay. But then if everybody's 10 is different, then one pain scale doesn't make sense for everybody. Then a lot of it is a medical record documentation piece only for the doctors. It's not for management of the patient. It's, It's justification to insurances and trying to allow it to be translated between different professionals and that way people kind of have an idea. But it is very outdated and I totally agree. And it's very focused. It has blinders on it because when you ask about a specific pain, you're only asking about one particular pain. You're not asking about how does the actual person feel. You're asking only about pain. You're pointing them in a specific direction. Right. I I totally agree with that. I, I find myself having to say a lot of times, you know, maybe my pain isn't as bad one day, but I'm exhausted or maybe my um, my muscles aren't hurting as much, but I'm dizzy. I'm very dizzy or I just in general feel bad or my nausea is off the charts or I you know can't eat that day or wh- whatever the other issue is that's going on and that's not quantifiable necessarily under the term pain. And I mentioned that and some doctors or nurses take that into account and some don't. And then it, for me, it gets all tangled up in this. I don't know if you want to call it anxiety or concern about who's going to see those numbers and where does all that information go? Because you know when, when you're on disability like I am, you wonder where does all of this information, you know, where does it all go and where does it all get spit back out on the other side? So for me, a lot of that, I'm just constantly having to concern myself with things like this. And it's very interesting. Before I had to think about all of this kind of stuff, or before I did think about all of this stuff, I I did not have these anxiety issues. And I still don't really think of myself as an anxious person overall. But when it comes to my health, there's just so much that I have to uh, stay on top of. And generally, I still don't think of myself as an anxious person. But, you know, certainly when you've got things that that can go wrong and and have gone wrong in the past, and you're trying not to have those same things go wrong. So speaking for myself again, I've ruptured an aneurysm or I've had my my aorta has ruptured before. And I didn't expect that that came out of the blue for me. And uh, when you're talking about someone who before lived pretty care, you know, carefree life or was a pretty easygoing person, I guess. I would say, and um, tried to look at having a chronic illness with a lens of, well, you know, yes, I have this chronic thing that's going on with me, but I'm not going to let it really affect my life. I'm going to live my life, et cetera, et cetera. And then something happens like a rupture, an aortic rupture. Suddenly, the things that you were doing, for example, the day, day that my aorta ruptured or the day that it began to rupture, I climbed with Womo in Italy. I was on vacation over there. And just enjoying my vacation, trying to live a life that was as close to normal as I could. And, you know, when I climbed in and the the aorta ruptured, since that, it has become harder and harder for me to do things like exercise more vigorously, I guess I would say. So it does affect you and it does give you those kinds of anxieties. When I was looking around, or if you want to say maybe... I didn't think of myself as shopping for a physical therapist, I guess, but I started after the aneurysm rupture, I started having more and more physical problems because when they cut my abdominal wall to fix the aneurysm, it limited my ability to work with my core uh, for a period of time. And when I came back to the United States, 
it was very hard to find a continuity of care because I had been working the surgeon over there. And then when I came back here, there was really no, there just wasn't like a pickup of that kind of care. And also I was just trying to survive because after something like an aortic rupture, uh, your, your health is still extremely tenuous for, mm-hmm. I believe it's up to two years after. So up to two years afterward, people do still die from a rupture that happened up to, you know, two years ago. And so uh, you have to be very gentle with your health for, for that period of time. And I was not up to the physical task of going out and finding any doctors myself. And I just didn't have that sort of support at that time. Uh, when I was able to, I you know started to started walking around and I, I started to realize it was going to be very difficult for me. They had given me a sort of a limited prognosis on being able to use my left leg again. And so for some of those reasons, and also because my back started to be a real problem, when your core strength on your back is probably eventually going to become a problem. And mine did. And I also found out I had some problems that I'd had since childhood, even um, most likely again, because Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is genetic and I've had it since I was born. And so some of those things were already there. And then some of them were probably not helped by the aneurysm rupture and the cutting of the abdominal wall. So I said, okay, I need to find somebody to help me through some of these painful things and I landed at a clinic and I, I had a great therapist there working with me and really doing everything they could to help make me feel better. And it did help some. Uh, it actually helped quite a bit. But after a certain number of visits, the clinic said, okay, well, we've sort of seen you. My insurance was willing to continue to pay me at time and still to this day. I do. I'm very blessed and very fortunate. And I want to put that out there because I know everybody is not in this same situation, but fortunately. Fortunately for me, I had excellent insurance and they would pay for many physical therapy treatments. But the clinic that I was going to at that time was sort of a fix it and and move the patient out kind of place. So I had to talk to the regional manager there and and ask about the sort of process. And and they shared with me, you know, that's kind of process here, but I want to, you know, they wanted to serve me and they wanted to take good care of me. So they hooked me up with a therapist there. And that's how I came to Dr. Elena. And I noticed right away that she was a lot more curious, I guess I would say. She really had this, just this sort of bred in curiosity about her. You could tell it was just a natural part of who she is. It's very interesting now that I've met her children. I can see that it is <laughs> for that. She's a very, very curious person. And from the first time she met me, she would have me walk and she would look at my gait and the different ways that I move, which can be very, I always say I move kind of like silverware in a sack. Like I just kind of, like, does that ring true for you, Dr. Elena? Do I kind of look like silverware in a sack when I move? There's a lot of moving parts that need to be watched <laughs> as you're walking. Very kind and polite way of saying yes, you look like silverware in a sack when you move. Uh, it's, it, it's, I'm all over the place. I just, I'm unhinged. So she took one look at that and she could kind of tell, okay, this is out of place and this is out of place. And, and I bet you heard over here too. And I was like, well, now that you mention it, I sure do. And you know, it was, it was amazing. You could just see her curiosity. And, and I think sometimes she even forgets that I'm a person. She just looks at me like a puzzle sometimes, I think. And she just likes to like, I, this needs to go back here and that needs to go back there. And it's so different for me to have a doctor, any doctor, not just a doctor of physical therapy, but any doctor really that sees the whole package in that way. I'm going to turn this over to to Dr. Elena to speak to this from a more professional viewpoint, but 
I think for me, one of the most amazing things about the evolution of her practice and our relationship has been finding out all of the other things that we can care for through physical therapy. And and she'll speak to some of those. There are uh, comorbidities, which I think we addressed this in our last episode, but just in case we haven't said comorbidities are other conditions that sort of parallel or run alongside of conditions that you already have or of the basic conditions. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome being the umbrella condition. And then there are other diseases, diseases, right? If you want to call them that or conditions that are sort of sucked up underneath that. And, you know, again, I'm not the doctor. Dr. Elena is. She'll, <laughs> she'll talk more about that in just a second. But watching her curiosity grow her from this person who was treating pieces and parts of people and kind of moving people through this sort of assembly line procedure where they'd be like, here's an ankle, fix it. And she would fix the ankle. And then the ankle would go off and do whatever the ankle was doing before it came in. And then just, you know, just the ankle. Yeah, just the ankle by itself going off doing ankle things. That's right. And she looked at me and she was like, Oh, I can see this person and like how the how the ankle it not that not that you didn't always do this. I know that you did, but you just weren't I don't think you were offered the opportunity in that person position to practice in the way that you are built to practice. You are built to see an ankle as a foundation for everything else. And yeah. just didn't have the freedom. There's a lot there's a lot that goes into why that is, you know, and why that was. You know, I was in a very busy outpatient clinic. We did get the ankles and the shoulders and the necks and the hips and the knees. And when Misty came in, it you can't isolate one thing because everything is a part of one moving entity. And I do kind of look at <laughs> her and others like her as little Rubik's cubes and there's so many different moving parts and they all have to be twisted and turned and convinced to go in a certain way for the whole thing to work as a whole. And I love that. And it's a great challenge for me, for sure. And being able to see all of that move together and the standard PT that's dictated a lot by insurance reimbursement and productivity expectations is not the right setting for people who have so many moving parts to a whole. Because the way insurance is set up and how you have to do your documentation and your paperwork and it just, it doesn't allow for that freedom to be a little bit more, and I always say I'm not artistic, but in <laughs> when it comes to treating people, I have a little bit more creativity. <laughs> so it doesn't allow you to be as artistic and go where you need to go and follow and listen to the person and listen to how their bodies are moving and watching things and, and trying to make it all actually be put back together correctly. And when, when it comes to the EDS hypermobility, the chronic pain things, typically people are in chronic pain because there are more than one reasons why you're in chronic pain. And it's just a matter of making sure that you address all of those things and in a, a standard outpatient PT clinic that is working on insurance reimbursement and, and productivity expectations, they just don't have the time or freedom to address all of that in one visit. Because when, you know, you come in, your script says shoulder pain, it limits what those therapists are able to actually address. You know, there is some posture things. You can go a little bit outside up and down the chain, but I can't treat dizziness when you're coming in for a shoulder. I can't treat your ankle and your balance when you're coming in for a shoulder. 
And when you have EDS and other chronic pain and hypermobility, you got to be able to address it all because a lot of times there can be a foot that's creating jaw pain. And it's just a matter of linking it through that whole chain to be able to get through that. And you have to have the ability to do that. Misty coming in and seeing kind of how there was a insufficiency of, of appropriate management for patients like her. That's what kind of inspired me to kind of develop my own way of practicing and kind of setting off on my own. So that way people like her could be actually managed and helped and not just pushed in, pushed out and checked the box. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, it's been so helpful to me because, for example, uh, on a weekly basis almost, I have something that falls partially out of joint. So subluxes, but doesn't dislocate, let's say. So for um, for folks out there who, who don't have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or who, who are new to it, or just are new to hypermobility and connective tissue disorders in general, one of the hallmarks or one of the things that people with some forms of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome go through is uh, dislocations or partial dislocations, Dr. Lady, you want to... The dislocations are a little bit more traumatic. I usually, subluxations are typically when the joint, and it can be any joint, you have a lot of joints in your body, um, but any joint can go outside of where it's mechanically designed to be and can't put itself back. It's not a full, you know, where you typically think of like in the movies and things like that. Or if you've personally experienced it, the hip or shoulder totally dislocates and it's just like hanging there until yeah. somebody reduces it and puts it, puts it back. These are more like your shoulder's still functional because you have that hypermobility and your, your body right. can still allow it to function, but it's not efficient. It's not mechanically where it's designed to be, to be actually able to produce the amount of strength that you need or the full range of motion that you would need, things like that. So it, it doesn't necessarily damage the tissues because with EDS you have, it doesn't tear things. Similarly to somebody who doesn't have EDS, that if they dislocated their shoulder, they would more than likely... Well, somebody who doesn't have EDS probably wouldn't be experiencing the, the chronic subluxations. Right. It would be more traumatic and it wouldn't. It would probably result in a structural tear and, and damage. Whereas with EDS um, and other collagen-type dis disorders, the structural damage isn't as significant. Yeah. Right. Thank you. So on a, I would say on a weekly basis, uh, something subluxes. Um, I, I think probably since my 20s, I don't think I've, oh, that's not true. I did have one full dislocation when I fell a couple of years back. I stumbled over some bricks and my shoulder fully dislocated. That hasn't happened. I mean, that happens to me once every couple of years, but about once a week, something subluxes or several somethings sublux. Normally, I normal, I guess I would say pre-Dr. Elena, I'm going to have to start like measuring my life, <laughs> my life in pre-aneurysm and post-aneurysm. Now I'm going to have to throw in another like era and go with pre-Elena and post-Elena. Unfortunately, all of these are PA. So pre-aneurysm, post-aneurysm, pre-Elena and post-Elena. I'm not going to figure something else out. Anyway, before I met Dr. Elena, when I would have these subluxations, I hate, first of all, I hate doctors, no offense, <laughs> but I don't, I don't need any more doctors in my life. I have plenty and I am, I do my level best to build a group of doctors that are the best in class 
and who who I can personally trust. And I think I've done a pretty good job of that Dr. Lynn being a an example. And I, I do my very best to only have to see those people and never have to see anyone else outside of that. And I really hate to see new doctors and I really hate to see doctors in emergency situations. I hate to explain my situation all over again um, to new people. I have to frequently prove myself, prove my situation. And this is just the worst, Dr. Elena. Please don't ever make anyone do this. I'm sure you don't. But I really, really hate to fill out paperwork that a doctor never reads and votes. I hate it so much. It makes me so angry. I just did this the other day. I filled out tons of paperwork, tons of it. And I really thought it was for a specialist and I'm not going to go into it because people could probably figure out. But I, I went to a specialist. The specialist themselves was great, really great, super appointment, all of that. But I filled out tons of paperwork. And then that person asked me exactly the same questions. They didn't have any of my paperwork in front of them and asked me exactly the same questions that were on the paperwork that I already filled out. And that really makes me mad, especially when you see as many doctors as I do. What does Peter Griffin say? That really grinds my gears. There you go. Yes. Makes me mad. I just hate that. And I really don't like to tell my story over and over again because aneurysms are a really big deal and they get people's attention and it's a long story and it's filled with all kinds of interesting tidbits and it takes a long time to tell. So, and doctors are always pretty interested in it, but then you never actually address what you're there for. You know what? If it really gave somebody something to work with and they did something special with that information or it changed my quality of care in some great way, I would be more than happy to tell the story again and again and again. But does it change care that I get in the long run for the most part? You know, if I'm there for like a something small, I, it just it's just unnecessary. Being able to go to see somebody on a regular basis who can take the smaller things that, you know, I, I guess maybe, well, to be honest with you, I just wouldn't go to an emergency room for something like the subluxation and it would just get worse and worse and worse. And I would work around it and that's just going to throw off other things. There's definitely so, a domino effect of like when you're when you have a subluxation it creates compensatory movements and you change how you move and it, it's also energy draining because of how hard your body is having to work against its natural movements so this is why i love working with that she just she knew immediately that i was wanting her professional input on on why you can't just walk around with a subluxation or you can, and I do many times and for weeks and weeks and sometimes months at a time. And it, and it makes my job harder when you come in and get it fixed. I really, I, that's why I do it. Because I know you like a challenge. <laughs> and I, you know what? I don't think this is challenging enough just yet. I'm going to keep going for a while longer. And I do that to Dr. Alina, especially during the <laughs> pandemic. I'm a little... I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit of a pandemic chicken, and I am doing my best to keep Mateo at home, but I do have to go, and I'm sure many of you who are listening are in this same situation where there's just no choice. I mean, there are times when we have to have doctor's hands. There's just, 
there are some times when, when a virtual appointment is great, and uh, I take advantage of that whenever I can. But there are some things that require hands-on treatment, and certainly physical therapy for me is one of those things. There are some things that you and I can do uh, virtually, Dr. Elena. So I know there are a lot of things that you do virtually for a lot of other patients. Go ahead. One you're not a pandemic chicken. It, there's rightful concern <laughs> for, especially in people with immune compromised systems and, and different things like that. There is a real concern out there um, for getting sick because we don't know how everybody's bodies are going to respond to this. And your bodies are already on, on overdrive, just trying to function day to day. We do not need to add something else <laughs> in there. There is cause for concern. But there are things where it's, there's no way that anybody could have tried to survive nine months so far and counting of not getting the help that they need. So with my approach, just to kind of touch in on the options that are out there, yes, there is a lot of manual therapy involved in my style of treatment where I put hands on, make sure that different body parts are moving the way they need to, which is very, very important because it does lead to that domino effect. But there is also the virtual aspect of it where you can have a conversation, you know, you can bring up concerns, you can have things viewing of different activities and things like that. So a lot of what I do is lifestyle management approach where we address how your body needs to be able to function in your day-to-day -day life and things that you want to be able to do. So we look at the whole picture. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm having trouble reading, well, then we look at neck stability. We look at how your eyes are converging to be able to focus on those words, you know, and having a, a therapist, a physical therapist that's skilled in all of these aspects is definitely beneficial to make sure that you iron out some of these details. So then that way it doesn't become more of a problem later on. Those are some things that can be done virtually. You can reach out with a, a question about, hey, I'm having problem doing this activity and we can kind of brainstorm on how to modify that. So then that way you can tolerate those things and, you know, whether it's or how to structure your day or what, how to modify an exercise program that's already established. If you don't feel so great, you pop on, ask a question, Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling like this. How can I best modify, you know, riding my stationary bike or how do I best modify my outside walk when I don't feel that great? You know, and then it's talking about the different elements that you can adjust to make sure that your body can tolerate what you need it to do, but still maintaining some form of motion that's going to keep you moving because that's very important because you want to make sure that you keep a constant mobility because it's hard to get going once you've stopped. And anybody that's tried any kind of exercise routine or workout or anything like that, if you're going consistently, even if it's three days a week, as soon as you're like, eh, I'm going to take a break for a day or two, it is so much harder to get going again and getting back into that routine, not only for the routine aspect of it, but also for your body to get that inertia going again. So then that way you get in motion. Um, so that's why I always really encourage people to do some level of consistent low level activity every day to make sure that their body stays in motion because it makes it so much easier to function for the rest of the day versus just waiting until you have to move and then only moving at that point because then it's so strenuous for you to do that task and it makes you want to not keep doing that thing anyway. So, and then it just leads to a whole host of other issues. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I, as you know, have, from having seen you for years, it's very difficult for me to tolerate because I also have postural orthostatic syndrome or commonly known as POTS, um, which is a comorbidity 
of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I have problems. I overheat a lot, especially during exercise. And I sometimes pass out. I get nauseated. I get, in, in some cases, I vomit. And I'm trying to mitigate that with hydration therapy. Interestingly, I found out this past year during the pandemic, and even actually a little bit before that, and, and some of our listeners may not know this, that hydration therapy can frequently be administered in your home. So during this time um, of a pandemic, you may want to check with your insurance company to see if you can get hydration therapy at home, if you're currently going outside of your home to get it, if you also have pots. There's something that I didn't even know was an option. So that's what I'm going through now. And also um, just kind of, I know this is a lot of my health information, but uh, in case it helps anybody, I'm also looking into getting a port so that I can manage my own hydration therapy. This may be another commonality that other people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, go through. I have, I'm, I'm a very hard stick in terms of getting an IV started. My veins have ruptured quite a number of times. Also, they're very small and they're, they roll. Badly. Um, they're just, I'm just in general, I'm a very hard stick and I always have. So, my nurses have, so I'm getting ready to go do that as well. So, you know, if you, if that's something that you're going through, you might want to, to talk to somebody about that. But some, something that I thought was very interesting that I didn't really think of, I never thought of a physical therapist in terms of pox management or it just never occurred to me. Or I also have convergence insufficiency, which you brought up a little while ago um, in terms of being able to see. And I thought my vision was just going bad because I had a milestone birthday not too terribly long ago, which we shall not discuss. 25, right? Yeah, it was 25. Exactly. And I I thought (laughs) my vision was just kind of failing on me. And, and maybe it is, I don't know. But also I found out that I, I went to a neuro-ophthalmologist and uh, he told me that I had convergence insufficiency. And he said it was pretty bad. He had some kind of measuring stick. And apparently I was like, I don't know, I had, I think it had like nine pieces on it. And like the closer you went to the bottom of it before your eyes converged, the worse you were on the stick, like the worse your vision was or convergence was. And I was just below, just above the bottom. So I was like eight. But after some treatment, which this isn't really, again, I didn't know this treatment existed. So some of it, I think, is just getting out there and talking to people. And and again, I want to say out loud that I recognize this is a lot easier in some areas than others. So I am fortunate enough to live in the D.C. slash Baltimore area where I can go to places like Johns Hopkins and the Wilmer Eye Institute and some different places like that, um, where I have had, believe me, folks, I have lived in some places where we did not have doctors that were readily available. So I, I know that this is not always an option, but if you are able to either go to or find your way to go to some places like who exists, I highly recommend that you that you find some some people who can talk to you, even if they're even if you don't understand Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. If you find a doctor with a curious spirit, I don't think you had ever heard of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome before I met you. Is that right, Doctor Elena? I mean, and, and I think we touched on this in our last episode. Is that I had, it, it was something that was brought up as a passing topic when I was in PT school. But as far yeah. as you know, any in-depth training or anything like that, that was not necessarily mentioned. And just to kind of also touch on the, you know, as we're talking about the different treatments and things like that, Misty has gotten, at least from my physical therapy options, is that not all physical therapists have the same kind of training. You know, a lot of our training is done 
during continuing education once we've graduated and on the job training. So it really depends on kind of how therapists have developed their own skills over time. And one of my biggest things was I wanted to be able to learn everything and be able to be a resource on multiple different levels for people. And I think that that's why my style and my education have kind of gelled so well with the EDS population because I'm looking to to be trained in everything. So now I can look at everything and not all PTs have that. And so when we're talking about the whole convergence insufficiency, when your eyes can't come together to focus on a singular point, that I got with a lot of vestibular training, a lot of vision training, things that I went out and looked for. So then that way we can address these things because they do play a role, not just in the reading aspect, but in functional balance as well. If your eyes can't focus on the same thing, you're getting conflicting images to your brain to tell you where you are in space and you can lose your balance. So there's a lot of things that need to be, again, it comes back to those, there's multiple moving parts in in every aspect that you look at. So being able to address all of them is where you actually become effective. So just as you're seeking out for a a physical therapist near you that may be able to have some of this training, ask them about any kind of vestibular training because that really closely correlates with some of the the vision stuff Um, from the PT perspective. There are occupational therapists out there that are specially trained in vision therapy that can also help with this aspect of it. So these are just kind of some key words that when you're, if you are looking for somebody to be that person for you that might help narrow down the field so you actually get what you're looking for when you're out there in the big bad world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will tell you so I and we touched on this also in our last episode, but I've heard the words Ehlers Danlos syndrome since I was pretty young. I had a doctor clinically diagnose me when I was young. And so I've had a lot of years to do a lot of research for people who are only, you know, maybe they're you're becoming an adult now, you're just now finding out that you have Ehlers Danlos syndrome. You've always known there was something going on, but you know, we've only recently become aware of it. So maybe you're just now kind of finding stuff out. Even having had the years that I've had to to read up and do research, I still find it very helpful to hear from other people who have Ehlers Danlos syndrome or even other hypermobility or connective tissue disorders or other chronic illnesses in general. When I find out what other people are using out there, and, and I think this is true of Dr. Elena's Oh, it's true with you, Dr. Elena, because I know you go out and you, uh, you're out in the world and you see something that somebody uses for something else that your mind is um, similar, I think, to my mind in that it's you say, oh, you're using that as a spoon or whatever, but I think it could be used as a splint um, or to me in that way that you see one thing used as a whatever, but you, you see the potential for it to be used in a different way or you're always trying to think of how can we prevent this problem for this group of people, or is there something that another group of people uses that this group of people could also use but for something else or whatever. And I, I think when I look at people who are solving problems, I look a lot to the community of people with disabilities. I've worked a lot in the DC area with people who have a variety of disabilities, or in some cases, I hesitate to call them disabilities because in many, many cases, I've watched people who go about their daily lives differently than if you want to say the, you know, the pack, right? So like 80% of people, um, they go about doing things differently because they're formed differently. So they found a, a different way to work with 
something. And I watched that and I have found a lot of, of inspiration there. And, and we're going to, we're going to talk a lot about that in our, in our future episodes. And because of that, because it, the community is such a valuable resource for us, um, we want to, like I said earlier, we want to hear from you guys. So uh, we want to hear what you want to hear about. We want to hear what you're thinking about. We want to hear what you deal with. What are your challenges? What are you looking for help with? What do you want us to put Dr. Elena's curious brain to use on? Um, tell us. Tell us if you're just tell us if you're listening. That's what we want to know. Tell us at dazzledoctor at gmail.com. Uh, come see us at Instagram, also at dazzledoctor. And come see us at Facebook, dazzledoctor. Find us anywhere. We're at dazzledoctor. Say goodbye, Dr. Elena. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. We will next time guys we'll tell you on instagram when the next episode drops bye bye for now see you later